Good to see you guys. We're in James 4 today, looking at verses 13 through 16, really, today. Uh, but we'll read through verse 17. And uh, once you're there, let's go ahead and stand. We'll read the text together. It says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow. For what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. But now you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. We believe that this is your revelation to us today, God. That this is something you want to impact and impress into our heart. Lord, that we walk in humility before your knowledge, before your plan, before your will. That we humble ourselves before your mighty hand. And we bring everything that we are and lay it before your altar and say, here we are, God. Use us. This life is yours. Let that be the case today as we go through James chapter 4 for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Go ahead and be seated. The title of today's message is, Do Not Boast About Tomorrow. Now, the main idea of James is that our faith, our declaration of faith and true and genuine faith would have fruits that come from it. Faith leaves tracks in our life. Faith has evidence of action that follows it. Obedience to the Lord in not doing the things that he says not to do and in doing the things that he says to do. There are pillars of faith that we see in the book of James when we kind of encroach upon almost a final portion of the book of James where the main idea is that faith perseveres to the end. Real, true, genuine faith perseveres to the end. And it is humble before the sovereignty of God, obedient to the will of God. Real, true, genuine faith, humble before the sovereignty of God, obedient to the will of God. In verses 13 through 16 today, we see this humility before the all-knowingness, all-controlling, all-foreknowledge, all-predetermined, all-behind, purpose, plan, power, and will of God. Verse 13 says, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell and make a profit. As practical as James has been so far, and it's a practical book, it's a very, you know, do this book. You know, Moody saying that it's shoe leather Christianity, rubber meets the road. Let's live this life of Christianity. As practical as it's been so far, we especially see it in these four verses. Boy, hasn't James turned our life upside down? James will do that to you. But it does this for the good of God's people. It does this for the good of God's glory among the lost and among the poor. Different books are going to do different things to you. You read the book of Ruth and you're going to be comforted. And that's awesome. You read the book of James and you're going to be poked and prodded to change, to, to challenge. You know, we're challenged by the book of James. And that's a good thing. As long as we as Christians let the word do the speaking into our lives, we let the word of God do the leading, we can know that God is going to do what is best for us, his people, what is best for those around us who are without him, and ultimately what is best for his own glory in all the world. His word is good. His word is pure. We can trust it. Every bit of it, even if it's challenging, even if it's difficult, even if it's spurring us on. And here we have this challenge today, a challenge to humility with our schedules and with our plans and with our hopes and with our dreams, with our own purposes, it would seem. 
And man, we have what, in this information age, in the age of the smartphone and the iPad and the calendars and the reminders and the apps that can pop up and tell us when to do that and when to do that and what next week's supposed to look like and what next month is to look like, we can become bound to that and completely forget that the Lord is actually the one who wants to rule and reign in our life. He wants us to be led by the Spirit. James's inference here today isn't to individuals who are trying to be good planners, but rather to those that rely upon their own ability. Note the the phrases here, we will do this, we will go here, we will receive that. There's an absence of the dependence of God. And there's a trust in my own ability to achieve. The individual here in James chapter 4 has forgotten their limited ability and they've forgotten their frailty. Ability and frailty. A plan that is made by an individual that is self-motivated, self-contained, self-made, self-able, self-strong. It's not a good place to be, James tells us. And he says, come on. That's how it starts out. Come now. Listen up. Are you kidding me? Give me a break. You who are making your big plans, telling everyone who you are and what you're doing. And man, it was bad in James' day, but now we've got social media that everyone posts every little thing about their life. And how often do I post something that is proud? That is, I'm going to do this and this and this and this and I'm awesome. And just come and look at how awesome I am. You just need to come and look for a minute. And you got to see what my plans are for next week and the week after that. And this is my countdown for this vacation and that and this, you know, and and we, we do that. And really, this is so applicable to us today because we just say this to the world now, to the globe. I'm going to do this. I'm going to do this. And and we see it even within Christians that I'm going to make this amount of money. I'm finally going to be comfortable. It's going to be everything that I've hoped and I've dreamt of for myself. Now, don't get James wrong. Is it wrong to be a good steward of our time, of our resources, to plan out our year, to make a budget? Of course not. Man, God is a God of order. God is a God of good stewardship. He calls and commands us to it. But the issue here in James is not that people were good planners. It was that they were playing God, not only in their judgment of one another in the previous verses from last week's text, but in their plans for their life. They were on the throne. I'm going to do it my way, when I want, how I want to do it. It's all about me, me, me. And that's us. And that can be me. In 2015, Prineville, the people from James wanted to get rich quick, and they wanted to take pride in their profit. It's good to plan. Even John Wesley, the great evangelist, used to plan out his day in 20-minute increments because he was afraid that there would be a third of an hour that wasn't used for the kingdom of God. I want to make sure every moment of my life is useful for the plan and purposes of God. The danger is that we make all of our plans and leave God out of the equation. And you know what? If you are completely earthbound in all of your pursuits, hopes, and dreams, you're going to make the same deductions that these people from James did. James addresses it in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11. Let the lowly, humble brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower fails, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in all of his pursuits. It's very similar to three chapters later, James chapter 4. Let the rich man watch himself. You know, Paul tells Timothy, don't let the rich man be haughty in his wealth, but to tremble, to be humble before the Lord, realizing his frailty. The grass, it grows and it's beautiful and it's useful, But within a week, it's got to be trimmed or it dies and we've got the chaff. It's got to be thrown in the the bag and the weed pile, the burn pile, the compost pile, and then it becomes junk. And this man's life from James 
text, there's no reference to God seeking the Lord's help, relying upon his strength, or conducting the affairs of life for the glory of God. This isn't a spiel from James against financial success, but it's against those who say, I'm in control of today, and I'm in control of tomorrow, and I'm in control of my success. I like what Sandy Adams, a friend of mine from Georgia, puts. Here's a formal believer who's living a practical atheism. It's someone who says, I'm a Christian. I might even go to church, you know, on my Facebook page, my religious status is Christian. I wear a cross around my neck. But in all of my affairs of life, I'm a practical atheist. God has nothing to do with my life. I'm maybe a deist at best. That there's a God out there, but he's not involved to my day-to-day living. A formal believer who's a practical atheist. Does that describe you today? Adams goes on to say he's arranged every detail of his life without the first consideration of God's plan or will for him. How good it is to stop and to wait and say, Lord, what's your plan? What's your will? Here's my will, but not mine. Yours be done. Verse verse, verse 14. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. You don't know what will happen tomorrow, but God does. Imagine being a Napoleon individual, being a a Christian, a mountain child even. Saturday morning, a normal day. You get up, you've got your plans, you've got your schedule, you've got your day planner, you've got your Rolodex, you've got it all planned out. You know what you're doing. And then one of the biggest earthquakes that's happened in the last century not only strikes, but then is followed up by other many large earthquakes. This, I was looking at a scale on CNN, and just to digress a little bit, you know, a six to seven earthquake is considered a, a, uh, oh shoot, what is it? Uh, I want to say strong earthquake or something. Uh, Then from seven to eight, which is where the Nepal was, which is a high seven, is 7.9, is considered a major earthquake. Major earthquake. Uh, One study showed that Mountain Child posted it was 16 times greater than the earthquake that was felt in Haiti in 2011. We know what that did to Haiti and the infrastructure there. That's what Nepal has gone through. And then we've had, you know, as as I read, 6.9 earthquake follow-ups all throughout the last day, all the way up through this morning. Okay, so, so these are things that nobody had a plan for. Nobody knew. Nobody knew. You know, uh, this, is, this is the sovereignty of God in action. We don't know what will happen in 15 minutes. But God does. That should humble us, and it should also give us hope. Augustine said, a God who did not know the future would not be God. He knows the future. He's the Alpha, the Omega, he says in Revelation, the beginning and the end, the A to Z, and everything in between. He knows the past, the present, and the future. Rest in him and be humble in him. Instead of pride in our schedules and our plans for our life, there ought to be humility. An understanding that we don't control our destiny, but God does. God knows the future, we don't know the future. And the fact that we don't know the future cannot be denied. We didn't know the earthquake was going to happen. We might have every barometer and weatherman in the world telling us what it's going to do this afternoon. And how many times have they failed us? We got every app in the world that tells us when our flight is coming in and when it's taking off. And that can fail us. As much as we try to plan and bring it down to a science, it breaks up. It falls apart. There's only one perfect in his dealings. James says, you don't know what will happen tomorrow. This should humble us. The opposite of that is making plans without including God. And James calls it pure arrogance. And you know what? Praise the God. Praise the God. That's how the Brazilians talk. They throw a the in front of it. Praise the God. Okay. Uh, I might have been Italian. I don't know. 
Praise the Lord. We should be very glad that we don't know that even something awesome is going to happen tomorrow. You know, that we're going to come into some fortune in three days from now or something like that. Praise the Lord we don't know that. Imagine how we would behave knowing we're going to be billionaires in three days. You know? Or imagine how we're going to behave. You know that's the face that you would make. <laughs> yeah. One time is all you get. One time. The spirit led it and now he's not leading it. What can I say? And praise the God that we don't know of the travesty that's going to happen in three days. Because then we'd be eating anxious bread, we'd be unable to sleep, we'd be able, unable to eat, we'd un, be unable to be about the plans and purposes of God. We should be glad that we don't know our failures this afternoon and tomorrow. The Lord knows all of this, and we can rest in Him. But you know, part of the fallen condition in all of this, and part of our bent towards sin, is that we have an inherent desire to know everything that's going to happen and to control it. Not only in, in the future, but in the past. We want to control what's already happened. We want to know, want to control. Why? Because at the heart and the root of every one of our sin is we want to be God. We want to be God. That's the Garden of Eden right there. You know that the moment you eat of the fruit, you will be like God. And you will know. Well, give me the fruit, Bubba, because I want some of that. That's at the root and the core of every sin we struggle in life. I want to be on the throne. I want my kingdom to increase. I, 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 I. Self-centered selfishness. It's evil. It's wicked. It's demonic. James has laid that out in chapter 3 and chapter 4. But because we have this desire for control, we will go, and even as Christians, I say that with a grieving heart, we will go to the psychics in this world, calling the Christian psychic hotlines, and they're out there. Go to the tarot card readers, the palm readers, read the horoscopes, put stock in our Chinese fortune cookie that we get. Maybe use the numbers on the back to head down and fill out a lotto ticket or something like that. Never done that. But anyways, we, we will look for that and hope for that. Give me something. Because I want to be in control and I don't want to trust the Lord. It's the problem that Israel had in their wilderness wanderings. Speaking of in the wilderness wanderings and when the law was given, the Lord lays out his policy for trying to take matters into your own hands, to know the future, to visit the, the mediums and the sorcerers and the astrologers and the soothsayers and the tarot card readers and the palm readers. and all. He says it's an abomination, have no part or parcel with them. Run away from it. It is demonic people. And how many Christians, you know, social media, they're posting what their psychic said, what their horoscope is. It's demonic. Run from it. Trust the Lord and what he's laid out for your life. The text says, for what is your life? Whenever I've quoted, tried to quote this verse from memory, I mix up two of the words and form it in a question. What is your life? And I always say, is it even a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away? There's no question there. James, when you read it right, he says, it is. Is it? It is. Memorize it right, people. It is even a vapor that appears for a little while, a little time, and then vanishes away. What is your life? Good question. Where do I come from? Where am I going? What's the purpose of my life? Am I just a random chance, a bunch of molecule, molecules that are held in suspension? You could have Johnny do the, the project for us. If we were to boil ourselves down to just our chemical elements, I think someone did a study that we'd be about $3.50 worth of elements. What is your life? $3.50 worth of material. Maybe enough chemical to, to strike the end of a match and light a flame. That's what we are, apart from God and his design and his sovereign plan and purpose, creating us in his image to bring him much glory and praise. But the length of our life is short-lived. We are a vapor, yet we think we're going to live forever. The poets knew it. 
Shakespeare wrote, life is but a walking shadow, out, out, brief candle. A little tiny flame that's snuffed out. That man would take stock in the frailty and the shortness of his life. For those that would live for themselves, we have the Earl of Rochester in the 17th century as an example. Had a whole lot of earthly wisdom and yet was very stupid. He was a young man, inherited his father's title when he was 10 years old, became an earl when he was 10. Went to Oxford University when he was 12, graduated when he was 14. Imprisoned an heiress that he knew when he was 18 and was sent to prison for a little while as he kidnapped her. He was renowned for his wit, his poetry, which led to his outrageous behavior and debauchery. Renowned for drunkenness, vivacious conversation, and extravagant frolics. So much so that at the age of 33, he was ridden with venereal disease. And people in his life brought in preachers to preach the gospel and plead with him to repent. And one man who was a preacher, Gilbert Burnell, wrote of him that for five years together, he was continually drunk and not perfectly master of himself, which led him to do many wild and unaccountable things. And he was dead at the age of 33 from VD. All of his powerful potential and plans, an earl at the age of 10. That's better than Doogie Hauser. College graduate by 14. Oxford University. Famous for his poetry. But lived his life as if it was his own. He died without ever really finding out why he had lived. And Alistair Begg writes, until we find out how to die... We will never know how to live. And until we know how we should live, we will never be ready to die. Your life is a vapor. Are you ready to die? Don't live for this world and for the pleasures of this world. It'll be snuffed out in a moment. Chuck Smith, the founder of Calvary Chapel, was famous for saying, We have one life to live, and it will soon pass. And only what we've done for Jesus will last. Job writes in 7-7, Oh, remember that my life is a breath. Psalm 39-4 says, Lord, make me to know my end and the measure of my days that I may know how frail I am. Indeed, you have made my days as hand breaths. I'm kind of a dork and don't know what a hand breath is. But let's be honest, it's just breathing into your hand and then when the heat is gone, it's gone, right? Shows how small our life is. That's not really what a hand breath is, in case you're wondering. That's, that's a Lakeview interpretation of the Bible right there. And then the, the psalmist says, And my age is as nothing before you. Certainly every man at his best state is but vapor. <clears throat> when I was young, and I won't tell you how young, I had a secret crush on a girl, a close acquaintance. When I was in the bathroom, I wrote in the fog on the shower door, I love, and I'm going to say Mary just for the heck of it, because I don't think there's any Marys in here, so, I love Mary. Wrote that in the shower door in the fog, and <laughs> took a picture of it. When I got out of the shower, I flipped on the ceiling fan and all the fog vanished away along with my profession of love for Mary. Until later on that afternoon when my mom found me and said, so you love Mary, do you? And I about choked on my tongue or my gum or whatever. No, I don't even know a Mary. Don't know what you're talking about. Word to the wise, apparently when the next person goes and takes a shower, the fog comes back. And the fingerprints are left in the shower. So, didn't really happen to me. I'm just telling stories from other people. Apparently, fog can come back too, but that's not the case with our life. It is a vapor that's snuffed out. Author Mike Mason writes, Our lives are like curly cues of fire cut briefly in the dark 
with a glowing stick. Or your life is like a bottle rocket in the night. Think of yourself as a sparkler. You light up for a moment, you dance and sizzle in the dark for a few seconds, then you fizzle out. You're gone. And Psalm, again, 99, 90 verse 9, says we finish our days like a sigh at the end of that verse. We finish our days like a sigh. The days of our lives are 70 years, and if by reason of strength, they are 80 years. We've got 70 years, and maybe on a good time, we're 80, maybe 90, rarely 100 And so verse 12 of that same psalm says, So teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. What a humbling reminder this is. Not one of us is guaranteed that we will be alive tonight to lay our head on our pillow. Is that not humbling? And how many people do we know that have met their end sooner than expected? My dad died when he was 47. I was 19 years old. My sister was 15. My other sister was, I think, 21. And I knew my dad had died young from a brain cancer uh, stroke in in his brain. But now that I'm 33, I'm realizing how young that was. You know, and and many of you who are over 47, you know, wow, that was just yesterday. Number our days. You don't know when the Lord will call you home. Verse 15 says, instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. You ought to say, first of all, if the Lord's will, we will live. That's it. That would be great. Every breath is a gift from the Lord. That breath was a gift. That breath was a gift. That'll get me through the next five to seven seconds. That breath. Oh, thank you, Lord, for this life. If we live, if that's the Lord's will, that will be wonderful. I'm so humbled that God has given me another breath to preach the gospel to you all. If the Lord wills. The Puritans were fond of this, if the Lord wills. And in the Latin form, it's Deo Valente, or God willing. And when the early Methodists would sign their letters, they would always add the initials DV, Deo Valente, recognizing that their plans were contingent on God's plans. Your will be done, Lord. Now, the intent here is not to create some kind of passive fatalism in our minds that says, well, God has determined everything, so I'm just going to sit back Be lazy until he determines to do something. No, remember, the whole context of James is that he gives us plenty of commands to obey and actions to take. He talks about activity all throughout this book, but he's talking about an activity that is humbly dependent on the sovereignty of God. What his desires and his will and what he's doing. This gives us a right perspective on the passing speed of our life. And how to make plans with that knowledge. If we view life as if it is our right, or a courtesy of nature, or just happenstance or chance, we would be missing the mark. Rather, we need to think of every day and every hour as a gift of God in his plans. Spurgeon says, let it be clearly understood and let it be conspicuous in all your arrangements That you recognize that God is over all and that you are under his control. In other words, let it be visible in the way that we speak, make plans, reflect upon our lives, and the way we tell others our hopes and dreams that God is the author and the finisher of it all and we're here to please him. Is that what your Facebook status looks like? Is that what your Twitter account looks like? Is that what your Christmas card and your Christmas newsletter is like? DV, Deo Valente, the will of the Lord be done. If it's God's purpose, if it's his desire, I was very pleased this week because we had friends coming over for dinner and they were supposed to be there in about 20 minutes and we had made brownies 
And uh, we decided we want some vanilla ice cream with these brownies. I decided that. And Lindsay was such a servant, she decided to go get it. But the kids happened to each have a few bucks burning holes in their pockets, and they were begging that they would be able to go to the dollar store and get some prizes, you know, within this trip to go get ice cream. You know, and I was being lazy and being a bit of a punk to my wife, and I'm like, I sure hope you're back in time to pull those brownies out of the oven, you know, and and we're teasing and having fun. And she says, hey, if the Lord wills, I'll be back in time to get the brownies. Um, But when the kids are going to get prizes, it's never the Lord's will that they'll be out of there quick. It takes forever. (laughs) James isn't saying that before we ever say anything, we always need need to say out loud, if the Lord wills, though it wouldn't hurt if we did that often. But rather to have a mindset that says, I need the grace of God and I am dependent upon the will of God in all of my plans and in all of my desires. I want to heed the wisdom from Proverbs 27.1. Do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. Luke chapter 12 verse 15 is when Jesus gives us a parable of someone who's not living in this type of a surrendered life and humble life to the sovereignty of God. He speaks to a man who says, hey, Jesus, tell my brother to divide my portion of the inheritance to me. And Jesus says to them, hey, take heed and beware of covetousness. For one's life does not consist in the abundance of the things he possesses. Man, what a life motto. What a life verse. This is something that is constantly coming out in our lives. It's a great memory verse. One's life does not consist in the abundance of things he possesses. That's not the American dream, is it? He who dies with the most toys wins, man. Go get more. You don't have that. You don't have that size tires. You don't have that type of lift suspension. You don't have that size of a house or that type of this or that. or Hey, beware of covetousness. That literally comes out of my mouth. Whenever we go shopping with the kids, I want this, I want this, I want this, I want this. Son, daughter, beware, take heed of covetousness. Watch out for it. That is not what your life is based upon. That's not the measure of a man. And then Jesus goes on to speak the parable, saying to them, the ground of a certain rich man yielded plentifully, and he thought within himself, saying, what shall I do since I have no room to store my crops? Seems like a legitimate problem. So he said, I will do this. I will pull down my barns and build greater, and there I will store all my crops in good. That seems like wise stewardship and wise planning. And here we get to the heart of the matter. I will say to my soul, soul, you have my crops and goods, or excuse me, you have many crops and goods laid up for many years. So now take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul will be required of you. Then whose will those things be that you've provided? So is he who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. James is speaking of the same type of fool, making plans for his own kingdom and for his own selfish gain without the wisdom of the Lord. And the Lord would say, you don't know if I'm going to call you home tomorrow. And you've been living your life for all of those material possessions. Whose are they going to be? Ecclesiastes speaks of that. You live your life for that corporation, for that business, for that possession. When you die, your kids are going to get it. They're going to squander it. They're going to mismanage it. Maybe at best it'll last a generation. But after that, it'll be run into the ground eventually. It's the wisdom from the Lord. This world tells us to live like we're going to be here forever urging us to make our plans, to acquire our possessions, to work, to build our portfolio. But James tells us to submit to God. Don't live like you're going to be here forever. Instead, live and plan and work your life knowing that it's short and that you don't want to waste it living for worldly things. If you died tonight and you stood before the Lord, are you where you want to be? perhaps living for materialism. Instead, we ought to say, the Lord's will. Now, that's not some far-off mystery that we'll never be able to understand. The Lord's will has been revealed to us in His will. And I encourage you to follow these next four steps whenever you are at a crossroads, a crucial decision-making time in life, 
making an investment, deciding to have more kids, whatever it might be, that you would follow these four things that actually are, are subcategories underneath this concept of waiting on the Lord. Waiting on the Lord. Recognizing how many times God words, God's word calls us to wait upon him. One man says, says, stand still, kneel down, look up and wait. Something's got to happen. We got to do this. We got to go. I don't know where to go. Where are we going to go? What are we going to do? We're going to do that. Stand still, kneel down, look up and wait. Wait for the Lord. Let me give you just four things that are examples of how to wait on the Lord. Number one, spend time in the word of God. God has revealed his will to us. He's identified for us certain things that ought to regulate our actions and our attitudes. And we see that in his revelation of himself to us in the word of God, the Bible. Your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light to my path. Psalm 119, 105. When we say, I will do this, we are saying, I will do this as long as it doesn't violate the word of God and his written revelation to me. Likewise, we can say, if it's not God's will, I won't do this. You like that? If it's not God's will, I'm not doing it. If it's God's will, I'll do it. Sometimes we have equal choices and it can be difficult to discover what God's will is. And so then it's also really good to seek wise counsel, secondly. Seek wise counsel. Proverbs says, where there is no counsel... The people fall, but in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. How many times do I see brothers and sisters that I love within the church surprising me with some great, huge decision that they've made that there was no counsel? There was no counsel. Maybe not an unbiblical thing, but certainly maybe something that could hamper the will of the Lord for their life and the community that they live in. Getting wise counsel, there's safety in that. Proverbs 12, 15, the way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but he who heeds counsel is wise. You know what? I'm a fool. I'm that fool that it's speaking of there. But I'm just going to be honest with you guys. I will do what I think is best when I think it's best. I'm just going to do that. We have a saying in the church that we're with each other in community to check each other's blind spots. Just as you're driving and you've got that spot there that, that you need to take a double check. You need to have someone tell you, backseat driver, is there someone there? There's someone there. Have you really considered this? Is this really wisdom from the Lord? There's safety and there's wisdom in a multitude of counselors. Or else Rory's just going to do what he wants to do. Very well could be against the will of the Lord. Thirdly, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting is a powerful revelation of God's will for our life. Right now we're in the Eat This Book series as a church reading through the Bible together. We're in Ezra this week and this week we read Ezra chapter 8 where Ezra says, I proclaimed a fast there at the river of Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and all our possessions. That is a life verse for me. That is a verse I come back to every year at our fast. People that are moving, people that have children, people that have possessions, possibly going to buy a home, sell a vehicle, uh, refinance a home, adopt a child, have another child of their own. Man, Lord, what is your will? What's the right way for us, for our little ones, for our possessions? Have you fasted about it? Have you prayed about it? We see in the same passage, verse 23 of Ezra 8, so we fasted and entreated our God for this and he answered our prayer. You dads, I encourage you to lead those times of fasting as a home. He will answer your prayer. Isn't that encouraging? He has never left us hanging. You know, recently, Lindsay and I have been in a place where we've, uh, you know, been praying about refinancing our home and uh, getting a good rate, and uh, we have an unfinished basement. We have a home where the, the linoleum in the kitchen's peeling up 
um, and, and cabinets are fading and sprucing up the home and finishing the home. And, uh, and you know, we began to think about this in early January and, and of course, have had thoughts in the past and began talking about this and what this could look like. And Lindsay's a number cruncher, an accountant. She's able to kind of figure out all the financial strain. And we just wrestled. We have such a heart for the Lord and for his mission among the nations. We are so aware of how a remodeling project or a finishing project on the home can become a God and can consume a life. We've witnessed that uh, in, in dear friends and close acquaintances. And we just know that we don't want that. And so, you know, we just went through a period where we were praying, fasting individually, fasting as a church, uh, talking to wise counsel, bringing it before the elders, bringing it before my father-in-law. My father-in-law, you guys are getting to know him, went to Nepal with us. His name's Ken. He's my Jethro. You know how Moses had Jethro who just spoke wisdom? My, Ken, you know, when my dad passed away within a year, he gave, gave me Ken, another dad in my life. Just a wise man, always has been that in my life. And not only that, praise God, the Lord is leading him to have a heart for the nations and the unreached people groups as well. And, and you know, went to Nepal with us and so able to just lay that before them. You know what God's doing in our church and in our life. We just don't want to be consumed. What's wisdom? Bringing it before the elders, to, to Kevin, a builder, pray with us, speak wisdom into this. Uh, just on and on, fasting, this last fast about it, talking to my core group, uh, Dan and Jeremy and I have had long conversations, I showed Dan the house, just pray Dan, I don't want this to consume, become an idol, just be what my focus and my passions are about, help me with this, and just living in community, right, it's what we're called to do, or else Rory would just do what he wants to do, I want a giant awesome house, it's going to be rad, and we're just going to keep building it and make it bigger and better and stronger. And all the neighbors are going to ride by and be like, oh my goodness. I remember when that was a junk heap. That guy must be filthy rich. That is not my heart at all. I want it to be a refuge, a place of ministry, a place where people are sent out to the nations, uh, a sanctuary for the Lord, a ministry home, all of those things. Even when I did something like <clears throat> I sold my, my red Chevy. It was a great truck. It was my dad's vet truck. Great, <clears throat> great rig. Loved it. But couldn't fit my kids in it anymore. And so sold that, was going to purchase a new truck that could fit, you know. I know what Rory wants. <laughs> Move out of the way. My tires are still wide and it's jacked up so high. Nobody else, you know. That pastor is just so amazing. Look at him. There he goes. You know, that's what I, that's my flesh right there. Okay. Laying it out there for you. And so I came before the elders and I said, I just want you guys to know I'm selling my truck. Just pray that the Lord will give me the price that I need for it. And that whatever I get, I won't be bound to some extravagant payment. And it won't be anything that catches people's eyes and they're stumbled by it as if I'm some rich dude, uh, that it could be a tool used for the kingdom. And you know what the Lord did? <clears throat> as I laid that before him, my core group praying with me, you know what the Lord did? He sold my truck in just a sovereign way that the only, this guy in Klamath Falls needed to plow snow. And the plow that he had was worth more than my truck, but it only fit a big block Chevy. And my truck was like the only big block Chevy like on Craigslist. He had to buy it for what I was asking. <laughs> the Lord is, right? <laughs> then, very quickly, I find a pickup on, on Craigslist over in Boise. Call the guy. We get talking. Fasting and praying. I was on my face before I called this guy. Literally in my living room praying. Call this guy. He goes to Calvary Chapel, Boise. His wife is from Prineville, has parents that live in Bend. And he said, I just got to go pray because I think I'm supposed to shave some of the price off for you. Calls me back. I got to, the Lord says, take a thousand off, take a thousand off. So they're like, well, how am I going to get it? It's a big busy weekend. I can't get over there. He said, let me pray. Let me pray. Calls me back. You know what? My wife said that we're going to drive two rigs over, one the truck, one our other rig. We're going to come visit her family. And I want to come to church on Sunday. 
That's how the Lord works. Okay? He's amazing. So come now, you who say, we're going to do this and this, and I'm just so smart, and I know everything about everything, and I'm just going to be rich, and I'm going to be awesome. <sighs> Let's just lay our lives down and say, nothing I have is mine. It's all his. Sell it. Buy it for the glory of God. If I'm going to have a big family, it's going to be for the purpose of the kingdom and for the glory of God. If I'm going to have a little family, it's not so that I can be selfish with my time and live for myself. It's for the advancement of the kingdom, for the glory of God. Buy, sell, trade, invest, not for you, for him and for his glory among the nations. Amen? Amen. Amen. At the end of the day, and I kind of gave a spoiler alert, we want to say like Jesus, I want to be about the Father's business. I'm going to buy a house about the father's business in the buying of my house. I'm going to buy a new pair of Nikes, about the father's business. Taking the gospel in my new Nikes. They're tools for the kingdom. Whatever we do for the glory of God. And if we are content to live that way, it will transform everything we do in life. And I'm right there with many of you. I'm not anything special. I'm, I'm really not, but you all know that. I want stuff. I do. But the Lord and his spirit is transforming my heart to want him and his stuff and his glory to be made known. Verse 16, but now you boast in your arrogance and all such boasting is evil. The problem against boasting is that it is evil. Your proud planning Evil. And hasn't James been boiling everything down, whether it's wars and fights among you or your untamable tongue or whatever it might be, doesn't always come down to a root or a well or a spring in your heart that is evil, bitter bitterness, self-seeking, envy. It comes from this bad boy here. And it's poison with bitterness that's demonic and devilish and needs to be changed by the power of Jesus Christ. And so if you're someone that is prideful and boasting in what you're going to do and how you're going to do it and how much you're going to get out of it, come to the mercy seat of the Lord Jesus today. Just confess your sin before him and say, I've had this pastor read this Bible to me. I'm seeing that my life outlook is wrong. It's against his ways, the Lord's ways. And so Lord, change my heart. Forgive me for this and cause me to long for your will to be done. I don't want to be one who boasts in wickedness. The J.B. Phillips translation says, that sort of pride is all wrong. (laughs) That sort of pride is all wrong. It's not how the world does things. The number one requested song at secular funerals is, I did it my way. Got the beautiful lady up in the casket, pampered with all this makeup. She's dead, but we're trying to make it look like she isn't dead because we're afraid of death. And then everyone knows she lived for herself and we're going to try to make it seem good. So we're going to have somebody play a little melody that says this. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, I did it my way. It's not a lovely song, it's an evil song. And it shows the heart of that individual that when their life was snuffed out, that vapor Perhaps it ends with the wrath of God upon them. Let's run from this arrogant, false pride of doing things my way. Let's have the worship team come on up. We don't have time to get into verse 17, or maybe we do, but we're not going to. And maybe it'll be a really short sermon next time. But it says... And before I get into that, you know how today we stood and we read the scripture together? It's just a good time where we humble ourselves and stand in reverence to the word of God. Some Orthodox churches and some kind of formal churches, uh, uh, a couple that I've been to recently, friends that pastor there, um, you know, I've heard after they read the word together, usually the preacher or maybe everyone will say together, this is the word of the Lord, Amen. And you know, maybe today seems a little different than last week, which seems a little different than the week before and the 46 people baptism or whatever that was. 
I know my heart just, just, this weekend was different. It was a different weekend, you know. I'm doing a birthday party roast comedy routine last night for Chad Carpenter, and I'm, like, talking for an hour and doing stand-up comedy, and it's, like, weird, you know. And it's like, okay, now i got to come out of comedy, comedian routine, and come back to the Word and just let the Word convict me. And he actually convicted me about some of my comedy, but... And I just was struggling, like bringing this message to you guys today. You know, sometimes I just don't feel it. You know, guys, don't come to this place today and then leave this place and say, oh, I wasn't really fed. Oh, I didn't really feel the vibe. I wasn't goosebumps on the back of my neck. I didn't laugh really hard or cry really hard or do some weird ecstatic or dramatic thing at the end of the message. I've had people leave the church say, I just wasn't being fed. I'll tell you what, it wasn't because the Bible wasn't preached here. It may have been because your heart wasn't open. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We humble ourselves to its authority. And verse 17 says, therefore, we just studied. What we just studied, therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. And if you're going to come into this Calvary Chapel and sit here like a religious person and maybe even take notes, but continue on outside of those doors as someone that is prideful in your planning and boasting in your arrogance of all who you are and all that you're going to do and you are so awesome and you leave God out of the equation and you are not humble to his sovereign declaration that your life is his, you are in sin. And I would just plead that you would repent here. Come to the grace of God. Let him wash you and cleanse you and change your heart so that you'll want to do what he wants you to do. And you won't want to do what he don't want you to do. Amen? Let's stand and humble ourselves before the Lord as we sing this song.